Let's join together in prayer as we ask for the Lord now to send his spirit to help us both to hear and to proclaim the word of the living God. Our gracious, holy Father, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us, that you have declared your rules, your commandments, your statutes to your people of old, and now under a far better covenant built on better promises with a better mediator, you have given to us Christ, Christ and him crucified. And we pray that now as we open the word given to your people of old, that we would see in them ourselves, that we would see in their sin our sin, that your spirit would help us more than anything else to see our Savior, see the judge, the deliverer, the redeemer that you have appointed uh, for us who believe. And we pray today that there will be others who have not yet believed, that today will be the day of believing, a day of salvation, a day of hearing in a way that saves them as they call upon you in faith, believing that you will pardon and cleanse their sin. We pray that you will be glorified as your people are built up, perfected, firmly established in the truth, and that you will be glorified as sinners are brought into the fold. We ask this for Christ's name's sake. Amen. Take your seat, please, and turn with me to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Lord willing, today we will finish the narration of the life of Samson. Obviously, Samson has been, uh, shall we say, a colorful character, to say the least. Um, But the whole narrative, as we find in chapter 16, as, as colorful as Samson is, as, in a sense, larger than life, Samson appears to us, the chapter 16 is ultimately not about Samson. In fact, the whole narrative is really not about Samson at all. It's about Yahweh. It's about our true and living God. And we'll see in, in, at the very end of the narrative here, Samson himself seems to finally grasp this. See, Samson has lived his whole life as if the whole thing was about him. And now, at the end, at the last, he comes to see that it was about Yahweh after all. And it's our task this morning to recognize and meditate upon the fact that the same is true of us. See, our default position is just to kind of live life as if it really is about me. I, 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 am, I am the sun and everything revolves around me and you guys are just in the way. And we all kind of think that way. Kind of a mass of colliding orbits and planets. The title of the sermon today is Faith at Last, and in, in here today in chapter 16, we will behold our God and his awesome work among his people. Now, I'm going to make three points in, in the sermon, but each one of those three points, and I'm going to kind of give up something rhetorically here rather than saving the punchline for the end. We're going to have three points, and what I want to do is, is each of those three points, I want us to meditate on it at three levels. One is the obvious and clear one, it's Samson. And we're going to see how Yahweh is working in Samson. But also, or and also, Samson is a paradigm. Samson is a literal historical figure, and he also was a paradigm that pointed to all of Israel. And there are a number of similarities that we'll consider in a moment, where Samson illustrates for us in in vivid, sometimes graphic form, all of Israel. And then there's a third level. 
Some of you are already smelling where I'm going now. Samson points to us, too. See, we need to contemplate each of these three things on those three different levels. So we're going to think three, three things, meditate upon three things about our Lord here. First of all, the patience of Yahweh, the patience of the Lord. And again, let's think about the patience of the Lord to Samson, to Israel, and to us. Secondly, we're going to look at the power of the Lord. What is the, contemplate and meditate upon the might of Yahweh. Displayed in the person of Samson, the life of Samson, but also, as Samson represents in many significant ways all of Israel, the might and power of the Lord in the lives of his entire nation. And then also, the power of God at work in us and through us. And finally, we're going to meditate upon the grace of the Lord. Here at the last, Samson exercises true faith. And this is only by the grace of Yahweh. So we'll consider the grace of God in the life of Samson, and then through Samson as a lens by which we can view all of Israel, and then also as a way for us to consider in those same particular ways the grace of God in us. So that's the plan. That's the roadmap for the sermon. I'm going to read the text. It's a longer passage, but I'm going to read it in its entirety. Hear the word of God, and this, this is to be received by us as truly what it is, the word of God. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up bar and all and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him. And see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will will each give to you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me, and told me lies. Please, tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. And then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. 
And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And, he, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, and gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now, the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael and in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
Before we dive into those three meditations on Yahweh that I mentioned before, the patience of the Lord, the power of the Lord, and the grace of the Lord, let's think in in just some very brief ways about the ways in which Samson is a paradigm of Israel. And I'm just going to mention a few, and as you go back, and hopefully you will, go back and read through the narrative, you'll probably come up with more on your own. But think about this. Both Samson and Israel were loved of God and set apart as holy before they were born. And and this is true of Samson. We see this in the narrative in in chapter 13. You go back and read that, how the angel came and spoke to uh, Mrs. Manoah and his father Manoah and said that from Samson, before he was even conceived, the Lord had purpose to make him a deliverer, to begin delivering his people from Israel, from, from the Philistines. And then Israel, I mean, Jacob who was later the namesake of the nation of Israel, Jacob, the scripture tells us, before he was even born, before he could do good or evil, the Lord loved him. And in a a real sense, before Israel was born as a nation, before the Lord took the family of Abraham out out of the bowels of Egypt, before the nation was birthed in that sense, metaphorically, God set his love upon them. He set them apart as holy. He sanctified them for his own use. Both Samson and Israel were given a divine mission to serve Yahweh perpetually. Both were endowed with great strength, with with amazing gifts, gifts that even the nations around them had never observed before. They were given divine resources that even their pagan neighbors recognized as unique, as different, as substantially beneficial to the nation of Israel. And yet, we also see negative similarities with them, don't we? Both Samson and Israel were never quite satisfied with God's goodness to them. From the moment Egypt, from the moment the Israelites left Egypt, what do they do? They grumble, oh God, get us back to Egypt. We used to have meat there. No, you didn't. We had plenty to drink there. No, you're making bricks with no straw. Samson was never satisfied. We saw this even after he was able to slay a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. What did he do? He cried out to the world, I'm thirsty. You're just going to leave me here to die among these uncircumcised? There's negative similarities. Both Israel and Samson neglected the very clear rules, commands, and statutes that Yahweh had given to them. God had made them, gave them rules that would demonstrate, and I'll make up a word here, their set-apartness their holiness, their special purpose, and yet they ignored those edicts. Both Samson and Israel had a wandering eye. Both Samson and Israel had a thing for foreign women. Both Samson and Israel were accused rightly and justly by God of whoring after their neighbors, and they found themselves ensnared by them. Both Samson and Israel assumed that their strength was a product of their own virtues, that their strength was was inherent to them. And they both missed the fact that their strength came from the Lord. So as we think about those things, Samson is that paradigm. So that helps us to look at each, as we consider, first of all, the patience of the Lord. We'll consider it through the lens of Samson, through the lens of Israel, and then also allow that floodlight to shine upon us 
as we consider how God has been patient with us as well. So let's consider in the first place the patience of the Lord. Again, this is a longer chapter and a a longer narrative, and there's a temptation here to go back and preach all over again from chapter 13 onward, but I won't do that. But let's, let's think about this. Let's just consider all the gifts and graces that God had given to Samson. I mean, from his birth, his supernatural strength, the protection that God had given to him. Even in natural ways, he had a, he had a, a godly family, a father and a mother that urged him to righteousness. He ignored them. He had, he had a great foundation. God had given to Samson all kinds of benefits to be used for the Lord and for the people of God. God had fully furnished Samson for the task to which he had raised him up. But we also need to consider the various ways in which Samson squandered those gifts and graces. It seems everything that God gave to Samson, Samson used it for his own selfish ends. He squandered those gifts. He squandered the, the, the grace that God had given to him in this Nazarite vow to set him apart as holy, we've seen as we walk through the narrative multiple times already. Samson has, has the three things that were required of the Nazarite vow. Touch no unclean thing, no dead bodies, nothing of the fruit of the vine, not even a raisin or a grape, no wine, no strong drink, and no razor shall come up on your head. Well, prior to chapter 16, we've seen Samson violate the first two. And not only stumble and kind of inadvertently, but but flagrantly, egregiously, willfully violate his vows. Taking honey from the carcass of a dead lion, and then not only taking it, but eating it. And then giving it to his parents without telling them where it came from. So we see Samson abusing those privileges. Think about this, the opening paragraph of chapter 16. Samson goes to Gaza, there he goes to a prostitute. He spends the night with a prostitute. Why is that in the Bible? I mean, think about this. What, what would the story miss if just verses 1 through 3, in fact, some of you here with young children, you kind of wish it wasn't there. Because now you have to go home and explain, what's a prostitute, Mom? It's in the, it's in the Scriptures for our good, and we, we want to ask, why is this here? What well, points us to the character of Samson. All the way up until his capture, he is profaning the name of God. He's playing fast and loose with the holiness to which God had called him. And here he is. The only woman who's named in the whole narrative is Delilah, but there are a number of women that have been uh, the the object of Samson's fancy. And he has violated his vow. He has violated the, the moral commands that God has given to him. Samson, in every respect, has presumed upon Yahweh I mean, here he is going in and spending the night with the prostitute as the men of Gaza lay in wait for him presumptuously, arrogantly. I can leave whenever I want, and I'll leave and take the gate of the city with me to show them I own you. I mean, to to leave a city defenseless like that, to take their gate, is a, uh, a profoundly symbolic gesture. You have no defense against me. You you have no recourse. I can do whatever I want. I'm your daddy. I can do anything. That's what he was saying. And notice the arrogance here. But notice how also, in all of this, the Lord persevered with Samson. 
throughout all of these things. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were God, if I were God, I'd have ditched Samson somewhere in chapter 14. Maybe you're more patient than me. Maybe you'd have made it to 15. But really, who, who would persevere with, with a man like Samson? The clear commands, the clear instructions, and he ignored them all flagrantly, willfully. And yet God patiently perseveres. But here, let's think about on a, on a different level. How is it that Samson, in a sense, typifies, how does he serve as a paradigm for all of Israel? And again, I mentioned earlier, the grumbling of the Israelites began immediately after the Exodus. I mean, from their birth, we could say, they were complainers. They were grumblers. In fact, that persisted through their entire wilderness wanderings. So much so that all of those age 20 years of age and older were not even permitted to come into the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, gives us kind of the infallible commentary on that, they were disallowed entrance into the promised land because of their unbelief. It was faithlessness. And yet God persevered with them. God patiently endured that. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, as, as Moses is preaching to them, preparing them to enter into the promised land. In chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 6, Moses preaches this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. You see where Samson and Israel line up perfectly? When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and in the midst of the fire on the day, out of the midst of the fire, I'm skipped a line, finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. The people of God rebelled at the earliest opportunity and then continually rebelled against the Lord. And yet God patiently endured with them. I mean, again, if you were God, wouldn't you have been done? The golden calf? I mean, wouldn't you just be, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. But he wasn't. And this continues all the way up. If you turn in Judges, go back. We're having to go back now in your, in your memory banks a few months and go back to chapter 2. Notice here what's happening in, in chapter 2, beginning in, in the very first verse. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. See, God has patiently endured with the people, even though they've, they've disobeyed 
if God gave a command, they, they disobeyed it and quickly. Well, then it continues in chapter 2. We have a summary of all this, these things. Look down to verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. See, we see a scene where Samson arrogantly lays his, de- his head down on Delilah's lap after telling her about the razor and goes to sleep. See, the Lord is saying, Israel is just like this. They've bowed down before a harlot, just as Samson has done. Then skipping down a little further, verse 17, yet they, this is the Israelites, did not listen to their judges. See, God raised up deliverers for them. God was so patient through this whole cycle to raise up deliverers, and yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is a picture. We see this in Samson, mirrored here almost perfectly. This is why the account of the prostitute at Gaza and Delilah and all this is here to show us Samson was descending. Morally, in his rebellion against God, Samson's trajectory was downward. Now let's think about this at a third level. As we think about Samson and him being a lens by which we can see Israel, and Israel being a lens by which we can see Samson, but through both, can't we see ourselves? Don't we see ourselves? I mean, will you consider yourself today Dear friends, will you meditate upon God's patience with you? I mean, you think about your own life, and you think about the great gifts that God has given to you, the wonderful opportunities he's given to you, the way he has set you apart from your moment of new birth and set you apart as holy, as a people for his own possession, as a holy priesthood. Will you consider the way that God has been patient with you as you have stumbled and you have rebelled and you have kicked against the goads at every opportunity? Well, we see that Samson is a picture of us. Israel is a picture of us. And yet, consider how kindly, how gently, how patiently that your God has endured with you, has endured with us as we walk together. I mean, he has dealt with your... Think about how patiently he's dealt with your weaknesses. The weaknesses of your human flesh your fears, your anxieties, your difficulties, your struggles, your temptations. He has dealt so patiently with you. But also with your stubborn rebellion. The willful things that you have done, that I have done, knowing full well, this is contrary to God's revealed will. This is contrary to the holiness to which he has called me, and yet I do it anyway. This is part of Paul's consternation with himself in Romans 7. Those things that I know I ought to do, I don't do those things. The things that I know I should not do, that's what I find myself doing. 
He says, I found it to be a law. There's a, there's a war raging within me between my flesh and between the Spirit. Paul speaks as a believer there, and yet he knows that God has dealt patiently with him. Our God has dealt patiently with us. Just a few weeks ago, and, and you guys know, many of you know the, the, the background, the young woman that lived with us for off and on for a year or so, and the various struggles, and, and we were out on our patio just a, a, a few weeks ago, and, and we were talking about her, and I, and I made the comment, I said, I just wish, I just wish somehow, that somehow she could see all the resources, all the people that have prayed for her, all the, the, the money, the time, the effort that's gone into helping her to get on her feet. And then it was almost like, you ever had those moments where you're talking to somebody and, the, and the, your conscience, the Holy Spirit kind of taps you back here and says, are you listening to this sermon? And I thought, isn't this how God must look at me? David, all the things, all the resources, all the time, all the gifts, all, all of the, 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 the fellowship around you, if you can only see that. See, this is a picture here. We, we get the 30,000-foot the, the, the view of Samson. We get to look at him forensically, and we get to look at him like a CSI team, and we get to come in and analyze his character. If we could do that with ourselves accurately and to see all that God has given to us and how patient God has been, how much he has endured with us, how much he has persevered with us, wouldn't we marvel even more at his grace? Wouldn't we even marvel even more at his holiness and righteousness that he would have something to do with me, with you? That's the patience of the Lord. Let's look in the second place at the power of the Lord. Let's consider his power that's on display here. And of course, when you think of Samson, you immediately think of strength. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, we did a word association game. You say, Samson, you go, strength. It has to be. That's one of his defining characteristics. Now think about this. We see this, of course, at the end. Let's kind of work backwards. We see him at the very end. Destroying the entire temple, pressing a left hand and a right hand against the pillars, pressing with his full weight and might, tearing down this entire structure, a structure that, can, that held and supported 3,000 people. And it all came tumbling down. A picture of his physical strength. But as the, as the scene opens, as this chapter opens, here's Samson in Gaza, and, and the narrator is very careful to tell us when he leaves, he doesn't just, you know, take a gate off the hinge. He takes the whole thing. I mean, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern cities and the way they were fortified, this is a massive structure. The gate, he, he, he takes the doors of the gate, the two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Saints, that's 40 miles away. 40 miles. Now, of course, this is a multi-day journey. But this is a, he, he goes and he places this right smack in the middle of Judah. Basically says to the Philistines, there. How do you like that? It's, a, it's an amazing picture of his strength. And of course... Later in the chapter, we see him breaking bowstrings like they're nothing. New ropes. Have his hair woven into a loom and breaks the whole thing. Delilah probably wasn't very happy about that. 
But we see him all through. I mean, taking the jawbone of a donkey and killing a thousand men with that. I mean, the strength that Samson has is, 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 is obvious. I mean, it's the thing that, that actually, one of the few things that are actually right in the children's Bibles about Samson. But let's think about this on the level of, of Israel. Again, as Samson is, is, a, is a paradigm for all of Israel. Think about the strength that God had given to his people to give to him, to give to them his covenant, his word. But as we think about just the history, when, when God leads them out of Egypt after 40 years in the desert, showing his strength by providing for them in such a way that even the clothes on their backs, the sandals on their feet didn't wear out. Then you remember the first thing that happens as they cross over the Jordan River? They come to the mighty walled city of Jericho. And remember, they've already heard, even Rahab the harlot had already heard, and even the name of Yahweh put fear into the minds of the people. So here's an unarmed contingent walking around the city, remember? Seven days. And with a shout, a shout, the walls fall. They destroyed the entire city, devoted it to to destruction. Joshua placed a curse upon any man who would one day deliver or try to to rebuild that city. It would cost him his firstborn and his secondborn. And that prophecy came true. We see this throughout the book of Judges in the defeat of, of various enemies. The might of Yahweh it's on display through Israel. I mean, just think about the Gideonites, or the uh, Gideonites, Gideon and the Midianites. 300 unarmed men conquer an entire army that was too numerable to count. It's the strength of Yahweh on display here. And there are far too many other examples for us to walk through one by one by one. But, but you, you, you read through the history of God's dealing with his people of Israel, and you see the power of Yahweh. By Yahweh's own testimony, it was by his outstretched arm and mighty hand that he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, Egypt was the greatest empire in the world, the greatest military power on the planet. And God destroyed them all. Destroyed all of Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen, and army. His might was on display, and yet, what do the Israelites do with it? They serve themselves. They serve their own interests. And again, the question comes back, what about us? What about us? And see, you may be tempted to think today, well, I don't, I don't have that kind of strength that Samson had. I, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I, and, and compared to Samson, I'm, I'm the 100-pound weakling. I remember in, in, when I was in high school, I was always the youngest in my class by almost a year, and I think when I graduated high school, I might have weighed 130 pounds and soaking wet. And I would work out during the football season, I worked out with the track team because I was too small and weak to play football, but I liked, I liked being in the environment. I liked working out with them. And during the, the track season, I worked out with the football team, and then vice versa. I was too slow to run in track. I was too weak to work in, in football, We'd be in the weight, weight room, and these guys putting stuff, weights on, the, on their bar that I could even pick one up and put it on there, and the only thing I could beat them at was chin-ups because I didn't weigh anything, so I could do chin-ups all day. And, and I, I had this sense of, of just physical weakness. 
and I looked at my, my compared to my my peers, I was I was not at all even close to the strongest one. And and some of you can probably relate to that. You, you don't have supernatural physical strengths. Even those of you who are physically gifted and stronger than most, bigger than most, you're nowhere close to where Samson was. You ever pulled the gate from an entire city, bars and all, and carried it for 40 miles on your shoulders? None of us has that kind of supernatural strength, but if you were in Christ, you have been endowed with a strength nonetheless. You have been endowed with a power and a might that far exceeds anything that Samson ever experienced. See, we see throughout the episode of Samson's life, there are moments when the Spirit of God rushes upon him for a particular task. But unlike Samson, the Spirit of God dwells in you, dwells in me in a different way. Under the new covenant, we have the gift of the Spirit working in us, abiding in us, dwelling in us and among us in ways that Samson didn't know. Saints, the Apostle Paul labored and, and he strained. In fact, he even prayed for the saints to grasp this. Because he recognized this is not something you see with natural eyes. You can look in the mirror and say, I don't see strength. You, you, you can consider yourself and think, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not strong like Samson. I'm not even strong like Paul in a different way. And yet Paul prayed for the saints that he served to understand the power and the might of God that was at work in them and among them. And sometimes we find it true that we can feel so very weak in one moment, and then, ironically, at the same moment or the next moment, presume upon our own strength. You ever had that experience? I'm weak, but I'm strong at the same time in the wrong kind of way. And Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, listen listen to what he prays. In Ephesians 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul doesn't say that your biceps will grow. Paul doesn't say that your shoulders will become able to bear large burdens. He says, in your inner man, that your soul would be fortified. That's where your strength is. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, who can forget what Paul started his gospel presentation to the Roman church? He said, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul doesn't mean here the power of God unto merely justification. I mean, that's, that's impressive. But unto a comprehensive salvation, your justification, your sanctification, your adoption, your perseverance, and your glorification. 
That's the power of the gospel at work. We dare not despise that, brothers and sisters. We dare not despise and think little of the power of God that is in us. Paul prayed for the saints. He said, I pray that you grasp this. I pray that this was something that you will set your spiritual teeth into. And that you will get a hold of this truth and that it will get a hold of you. Whatever strength you have, brothers and sisters, whatever gifts you have been given, whatever opportunities that you've been given, you will, will you use those to glorify the Lord? We use those to serve his people. I mean, up until this very final act, Samson had only ever used his strength for his own selfish ends. Either to get his revenge, to throw a party, to riddle among the Philistine men, to show his prowess with various women. He gratified his own desires rather than seeking to glorify God, rather than to serve the purposes of for which God had raised him up to begin with. And and the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, Paul is praying for that the the saints would understand this power and this strength and the gifts that they had been given. Peter prays in a little different way. He says, I pray that you know how to use them. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. And I love that term. The ESV kind of flattens it out. It's it's very, it's it's multifaceted. Think of of a diamond. A diamond just coming out of the ground. It's not all that impressive until a skilled jeweler begins to cut it. And all those different faces, so that it reflects and refracts, and and it just begins to, to almost catch fire as the light comes through it. Peter uses a very similar word. He says, as good stewards of the manifold, variegated, varied grace of God, whoever speaks, and he gives kind of just two general categories, as as he who speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, Peter's not interested in giving us a a, a detailed uh, spiritual gift inventory. So whatever it is, if God's given you utterance in some way, use that. If God's given you the means in some way, talent, time, treasure, to serve, use that. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So we ought to meditate. We ought to meditate upon the patience of Yahweh and upon the power of Yahweh. And and hold those two side by side. Not to separate them. See, God's patience in our failures, in Samson's failures, in Israel's failures. See, his power at work in them. See, we can look at Samson and think, well, this is some fantastical tale from a time long, long ago that doesn't really apply to us. But in spiritual terms, we have access to greater power than even Samson understood. So finally, let's meditate together upon the grace of Yahweh. We've seen his patience. We've seen his power. Let's meditate upon his grace, his mercy. Again, think about this through these three levels. Think about Samson. And I noted at the beginning of the narrative, all the way back in chapter 13, which seems like eons ago, even though it was only about a month ago, we noticed that there was a, there was a breaking of a pattern. See, all through the judges' cycle, you see the, the people doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the God, God giving them over 
to their adversaries. They cry out in their misery, and God raises up a deliverer who saves them, and then the cycle repeats, but it's always on a downward spiral. But I pointed out at the time, anytime in ancient Near Eastern writings, so particularly the Hebrew Scriptures, when we see a pattern, and we see a pattern broken, our antenna immediately should go up. Well, something's important here. And the pattern that's broken is that the people never cried out to God. They were miserable. God handed them over to their enemies. They had done evil in in God's sight. God handed them over, and God raised up a judge. But right in the middle, it's missing. They never cried out to the Lord until Samson. Until Samson. See, we see in this scene with Delilah, when Samson tells her, you know, he, he's, he's playing along with the game, and it's kind of a, a, a charade of sorts where, oh, they tie me with bowstrings that haven't been dried yet, and I'll be like any other man. See, even by his own words, he knows the calling on his life is unique. I'm not like every other man. God has called me to something distinct. But, but rather than, than using that to serve Yahweh, he, he boasts in it. Impressing this Philistine woman in her bedroom. And so we go through the three things. You bind me with new ropes, I'll be like any other man. If you weave my hair into a loom and set it with a pen, I'll be like any other man. But Delilah knows this last time. She presses him hard. He's vexed to death. It's the same same phraseology that's used earlier with the unnamed uh, wife of Samson. She presses him hard. I mean, she just nags, 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 till finally he says, okay, okay, I'll tell you. And he tells her about the razor. No razor's ever come up on my head. Now, we know that that wasn't literally, physically, the source of Samson's strength, was it? Yahweh was the source of his strength. But Samson betrays this confidence. And to the so much so, something about the way, the manner that he said it, she knows this is different. She knows Samson's really told me his heart. So much so, th- see, the three times before, the Philistines still kind of lay in wait. And she, she plays the game, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up, busts the cords, and this time he says the same thing. But she knew this time was different. In fact, it was so different that the Philistines brought the money in advance. You see that? They paid in advance. Because they were convinced this is really it. And Samson says, this will be just like every other time. I will do what I want. I will rise up just like every other time. There are three times in the narrative of Judges that we're told somebody did not know. This is the last one. Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. Tragic words. He did not know, and the Lord had left him. But now, here at the very end, Samson is the first of the Israelites to cry out to Yahweh. Samson, here as a prisoner in bronze fetters, being brought in as a plaything, as, as to entertain them. 
And Samson, we're told in verse 28, called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. You know, it struck me today in our New Testament reading in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus is, is warning the people about the, the danger of sin. Remember what he said? If your hand causes you to sin, tear it off. Cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. Samson's eyes have been gouged out. Or maybe for the first time in his life, he actually sees. Sometimes we don't think about those hardships the chastisement of the Lord being a mercy to us, being a grace to us. Samson now, in his chains, in his blindness, in his humiliation, finally sees for the first time. And he cries out to the Lord. He's the first of the Israelites to do so. And when he says, remember me, he's not making an appeal to God saying, you know, you've probably forgotten me. My name is Samson. Um, you know, my, my dad, Manoah, you remember him? He was a good guy. He's not doing, he, he knows God hasn't forgotten in that sense. What is he asking? Samson's finally dawning on him. I was set apart for a holy purpose. Lord, will you remember your calling upon me? Will you remember your covenant faithfulness? Will you act according to your own word? Remember me. And see, we, we can be pretty critical here because even, even here, I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest, Samson's call upon the Lord is not without its problems. There's nothing here about delivering my countrymen. There's nothing here about glorifying Yahweh. Let me be avenged for my two eyes. And yet, we know this is true faith. This is true faith. Now, how do we know that? because we have the infallible commentary in Hebrews chapter 11 that tells us it's true faith. We'll turn there here in a moment. You can go ahead and turn ahead if you want. But when Samson says, remember me, he's asking Yahweh, by faith, he's asking Yahweh to deal with him according to Yahweh's own word. He believes Yahweh's word. But I want you to notice something else about the grace of God. In verse... 30, the second half of verse 30, he said, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. I don't think that's a commendation. I don't think that's a round of applause for Samson at the end. I think this is a lament. I mean, this is a man who in one, one occasion killed a thousand men. Just in, in his fury with a, with a jawbone, he killed a thousand men. And in 20 years, he had killed less than 3,000. I think this is a picture of how much he had squandered the gifts and the graces that God had given to him. And yet, Yahweh heard him. And yet, the Lord heard and saved. In the end, Samson is buried by his own family. What did Samson deserve? Leave him in the rubble. Leave him in the rubble of this pagan temple. That's what he deserved. And yet, graciously, God gave him, gave his body into the hands of his family to take him and bury him in his father's tomb. 
But not only buried with his father, he's buried in the promised land. Samson's buried in the promised land. Do you know that not even Joseph was buried in the promised land? Remember Joseph told the, the people of Israel, told his brothers, 400 years thence, when God delivers us, you take my bones out of this place. I don't belong here. But that's where he was buried. Moses didn't get to be buried in the promised land. The Lord allowed him to, because of his own sin, he stood on the mountain, he looked over, he saw the promised land, but he didn't get to set foot on it. Samson, by the grace of God, is buried with his own family, with honor in the promised land. If that's not God's grace, I don't know what is. But again, think about Samson as a picture of Israel. We don't know exactly when the book of Judges was written. It may have been written during the time of David as sort of an apologetic for, for David and a polemic against the Benjaminites, Saul in particular. Also could have been written during the time of the exile. But, but in either case, whether it was written during the time of David or later in, in a time of exile, what kind of encouragement do you think this could have been to the Israelites? Here's Samson with all the gifts and graces that God had given to him. Ignored God at every turn. Disobeyed God every chance he got. Squandered every gift, every resource that God had given to him. And yet, when Samson called out in true faith, God heard. God delivered. God answered. God saved. This lesson for Israel would be profound. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or what you've not done, call upon the Lord. No matter how much you have rebelled against him, call upon the Lord, and you will be saved. Now, of course, I hope here the, the application for us becomes clear. As we, as we think about the patience of God and the power of God at, with, at work at Samson and Israel and us, Let's not neglect to think about the grace of God. As we see Samson here, in all of his profound failure, I mean, it's graphically illustrated how big was the fall of Samson, and yet how gracious God dealt with him in the end. Writing to the Corinthian church, Paul reminds them in chapter 1, right out of the chute, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Like a temple to Dagon. Samson, blind, apparently weak. You know, Spurgeon asked the question, why didn't the Philistines send a barber in every week? Well, they weren't that bright. Because we see this statement here in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And again, you and I know the hair wasn't objectively, literally the source of his strength. But let's don't Let's don't separate the sign from the gift. 
to such a degree that we've missed the fact that there's, there's a symbolism here. God had left him. God's spirit had departed from him, but he hadn't abandoned him absolutely. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I told you we were going to turn to Hebrews. I'm going to do this briefly, but importantly. And I know you, you know, you're familiar with with this chapter, this so-called Hall of Fame of Faith. But look first at the definition that the Apostle gives in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what we're going to read, this, this applies to Samson. And if you were in Christ, this applies to you. Skip down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Infallibly, certainly, inerrantly, we can know Samson's faith was genuine in the end. It was flawed, it, it, it was in error still. It was perhaps weak still, but it was true and saving faith. I don't know about you, but don't you find it perplexing that such flawed men like Samson would be enshrined in Hebrews 11? Do you find that perplexing? Do you find that confusing? Well, if you do, I mean, perhaps, perhaps, That's an indication that you're leaning more towards thinking in terms of works, righteousness, to justify you. If that confuses you, that some bad dudes are in Hebrews 11. Some scandalous women are in Hebrews 11. Or do you find it encouraging that such men and women are there? Do you look at Hebrews 11 and say, you know, I mean, I can see Abraham being there. I mean, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but, but on balance, on balance, Abraham did well. Moses, I mean, I didn't set foot in the promised land, but on, on balance, Moses was a good, one of the good ones, right? But Jephthah? I mean, Gideon? Samson, really? Yes. Behold the grace of your God. Behold the grace of your God to forgive sin to deliver from iniquity, to cleanse and wash. I'll close with this from John Calvin. He's quoting here from, or he's commenting here on Hebrews 11. He says, Then the apostle ascribes all that was praiseworthy to them, in them, to faith. Though there was not one of them whose faith did not halt, 
Gideon was slower to take up arms than what he ought to have been, nor did he venture without some hesitation to commit himself to God. Barak at first trembled, so that he was almost forced by the reproofs of Deborah. Samson being overcome by the blandishments of a concubine, inconsiderately betrayed the safety of the whole people. Jephthah, hasty in making a foolish vow and too obstinate in performing it, marred the finest victory by the cruel death of his own daughter. Thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. There is, therefore, no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we, by faith, go on in the race of our calling. As the church has always been preserved by God's hand through faith, so as this day, there is no other way by which we may know his kindness toward us. Since all things were done by faith, we must feel convinced that in no other way than by faith is God's goodness and bounty to be communicated to us. Behold the grace of your God, that by faith, even you, even me, can taste his goodness. Your faith is weak. Your faith is stumbled. Your faith is mixed with your own imperfections and errors and even stubborn rebellion. And yet if it is true faith, it saves. Will you meditate upon God's patience with you? Will you, will you meditate upon the scriptures, how, how, how we, we are shown the power of God at work within us and how we ought to pray for ourselves and for one another that we would understand more of it? Will you meditate upon the grace of your God to deliver you even from you? To deliver you from his wrath? To to deliver you from himself? Such is the grace of our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, great God, Holy Spirit, will you humble us before your majesty and your glory, before the awesome presence of our risen and exalted Savior. Humble us before the wisdom and the gracious mercy of our God. We ask that you help us both to understand your word and to meditate upon it, Father, help us not to be as the man who looks at himself in the mirror and goes away forgetting what he has seen. Holy Spirit, help us to be doers of this word, not merely hearers of it. Help us to do that which you've commended to us, to meditate upon you and your patient endurance with your people. Help us to meditate upon the power that is at work within us that is far greater than anything in this world. Forgive us when we forget that. When we, as it were, stand in awe of the power of the world and forget the power that you've placed within us. Father, help us to marvel as we meditate upon your gracious work in us. you forgive our sins? 
that you cleanse us from unrighteousness. That you redeem our sin, that you redeem even our stubborn, willful rebellion against you. But will you comfort your people? And, and by that comfort, by, by comprehending the grace that we have received, will you motivate us more and more to holiness? Motivated by a gratitude for all that you have done in us and through us. Amen.